The first reading this evening is taken from Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 25 to 35. This may be found on the screen behind me and on page 1070 of the Church Bible, should you wish to follow it. Jesus, the bread of life. John 6, verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works of God, that God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, can I encourage you to keep your Bibles open at that passage? Uh, if you haven't got your Bible open, please do find one nearby, because we are going to be digging into that passage. It's John chapter 6, which is on page 1070 in the Church Bibles. Well, let me pray for us before we begin. Lord God, we do thank you for your word that speaks of your deeds and your love for us. And that it's not just a past word, but it's a present word for us here this evening. And we pray and ask that by the power of your spirit, you would speak to us. Would you use my words, or despite my words, would you use what your word says in front of us to speak and to change us to be more like Christ? In your name we ask this. Amen. Well, I want to begin with a story. Albert Einstein is perhaps one of the cleverest people who has ever lived. Many of you will know him because he's a quite well-known scientist from the 20th century with shocking hair, with a great sense of humour, and absolute genius for coming up with new ideas. I happened to be a physics student uh, in my uni days, and I remember studying some of his theorems and thinking... How did he come up with these things when he was still in his 20s? It puts all of us to shame, really. 
but he was also very well known for being quite scatty, as most uh, eccentric geniuses are. He used to misplace things and forget even the smallest of details. And there's a well-known story of him on a plane, uh, on a train, sorry, in Princeton in the US when he was giving lectures in the States. And he was on a train traveling towards Princeton, and he saw the ticket conductor coming down the carriage, stamping tickets. And Einstein looked very worried, and he started searching himself for his ticket. He searched his vest pocket, and it wasn't there. He searched his trouser pocket, and it wasn't there. But thankfully, the train conductor straight away recognized him, and he said this, Dr. Einstein, I know who you are. We all know who you are. I'm sure you've bought a ticket. Don't worry about it. And then the conductor just passed him by. And Einstein nodded appreciatively, but then very quickly he started looking for his ticket again, and he was on the floor, crawling under the seats, trying to find his ticket. And the conductor, looking back, saw him do that and ran back and said, Dr. Einstein, Dr. Einstein, don't worry. I know who you are. It's no problem. You don't need a ticket. I'm sure you bought one. And Einstein, looking back at him, said, Young man, I too know who I am. What I don't know is where I am going. <laughs> that would be a silly story to start off with, but I wanted to uh, say that just because what Jesus does in these seven I am statements, which we're looking at over the next few Sundays and the evenings, is to proclaim who he is and what he's doing, where he's going, what his mission is. He knows exactly who he is. And he wants the world to know who he is. And he knows exactly why he has come. And he wants the world to know why he has come. And wonderfully, in the Gospel of John, we have these seven almost depth charges to shake us out of complacency, to wake us up. This is who Jesus is. And of course, whenever he says the words, I am, he's actually referring back to the Old Testament where God's ultimate self-revelation to Moses at the burning bush, when Moses asks, whom shall I say is sending me back to the Israelites? And what does God say? He says, say that the I am sends you. I am who I am, Yahweh. This was the ultimate name for the Jews to understand who God was. The self-existent, pre-eternal divine, glorious, I am. And so when Jesus starts to use these phrases, I am, he's making huge claims for himself. He's equating himself with that revelation back then. People would have stood up and listened at this point. He's saying that? He has the audacity to use that phraseology? He's saying, I am? What's he saying about himself? Well, we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. And we're starting with this first one where he says this. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am the bread of life. The one who satisfies the greatest hunger of our lives. And three very simple things for us tonight that we're going to be looking at about this bread and the hunger Jesus satisfies. And the first one is... Jesus doesn't satisfy all hungers. But secondly, Jesus satisfies our deepest hunger. And thirdly, Jesus himself is the satisfaction of our deepest hunger. Sure, we know these things, but these are refreshments and helps uh, to remember who he is, hopefully. 
Well, firstly, from our passage, really, Jesus makes clear that he doesn't satisfy all hungers. There's some he doesn't promise to satisfy. Bit of a controversial thing to say, perhaps. The context of our reading is chapter 6's great miracle, which was the feeding of the 5,000. He's been speaking to the crowds by the Sea of Galilee, really just a large lake, actually, and it's got towards night, and he realizes that the crowds have got no food, and they've got nowhere to go and buy some food. There's no quickie mart, there's nothing like Tesco's Metro. What are they going to do? And he asks his disciples, what are we going to do? And the disciples say, even 10 years' worth of wages wouldn't be enough to buy food for all these people. And then another disciple comes up to him and says, well, there's these five loaves and two fish. What can we do with them? And you know the story. Jesus gives thanks to God in heaven, blesses it, and it's multiplied miraculously. And all the crowd would have seen this and realized it's come from one place. What a great miracle. They're fed. But then straight away in chapter 6, he plays a game of hide-and-seek with them. He tells his disciples to go and cross the lake, but he doesn't join them. And so they cross the lake, and he stays on shore, and the crowds would have seen this. And then in the middle of the night, he performs his next miracle. He walks on water to join his disciples on the lake. And that was a private showing miracle. That was only really for the disciples to understand his power over nature. But the crowds are confused when they wake up the next morning. They're wondering, of course, where has Jesus gone? He didn't go in the boat, and none of the other boats are missing, and he didn't pass through it, so we would have noticed that. Where's he gone? And so they go out searching for him, and actually some of them uh, decide to sail across the lake as well. And they go to Capernaum, where the disciples are, and there they find Jesus to their shock. How did he get there? What happened? And that's where the story picks up. Verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? We don't, we, we don't understand. How did you get here? You didn't go with the disciples. When did you get here? And Jesus answers, verse 26, I tell you the truth. You are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. He doesn't answer their question. He lets them stay mystified because he wants to dig to a deeper problem. The problem isn't what's he been doing and how has he ended up on the other side of the lake. Now, the reason he played this slightly sneaky game of hide-and-seek with them was to expose what was in their hearts. Would they truly seek him out? And what was the motive that they would have in their hearts to seek him out? And he says, well, actually, I've seen your motives, why you've sought me out. And it isn't because you saw the miraculous sign that pointed to my divine glory. It was actually because I fed you. And you thought, we're onto a good thing here. We stick around Jesus, we get free food. And that's why you've come to find me out. What a mundane reason, what a sad reason to come and find me. Don't you realize that you, I'm here to do so much more? I'm about so much more than that. I fed you as an act of compassion, but I'm about feeding you with something much, much greater, a deeper hunger to be met with better bread that I can provide. Paul in Romans 14 puts it like this. 
The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Jesus hasn't come to satisfy physical hunger, though he may, in many circumstances, do that as an act of grace and compassion. He's come to do something much greater than that. And applying this to us as a first point, we often don't come to Jesus for food. We're blessed in the West, aren't we? To a large extent, especially many of us over Christmas, we're especially blessed and are working it off over January. Yes, but there are other hungers that we might be tempted to come to Jesus with that actually he's nothing to do with, that he's not about. It's not what his mission was and still is. He's about deeper things. There are some hungers that Jesus doesn't satisfy. And again, that might be shocking. You might have heard the story of the Sunday school teacher who asks the class, what's brown and furry and climbs a tree? And one boy puts his hand up in the air and says, well, I know it sounds like a squirrel, but it must be Jesus because that's the answer to all the questions in Sunday school. (laughs) Now, sorry not to denigrate Sunday schools, Rachel. I'm sure our teaching is much more in-depth than that. But sometimes we can have this fallacy that Jesus actually is the answer to every single question and every single problem and every single desire that we, we could have. There are some things that actually he is about and some things actually he's not about at all. And the key is understanding the difference. If you're here and you've been wondering about the Christian faith, maybe you've been on the edges of church or maybe you've just wandered in for the first time, and you're wondering about who Jesus is. Let me say to you right now, he is not the solution to every single one of your problems in life. To expect that will mean that you will be disappointed. There's some things he's not about. But if you seek him on his terms and what he says that he wants to do, you will be amazed. And if you're here and you've been following Christ for a number of years, the same challenge really. Why are you following him? What hungers, what desires are you seeking for him to fulfill? There's some that he wants to, there's some that he really doesn't care about and isn't about. That he may do as an act of grace and love, but he's about so much more. He doesn't promise to satisfy a hunger for success, for example, or respect from people. That's not what he's about. He doesn't promise to satisfy a desire for romantic relationships and amazing family. Though he may well give that as an act of grace. He isn't about making you wealthy. Though some churches sadly speak about that. And he's not about giving you a comfortable and easy life. In fact, he said the opposite. He said the opposite. Don't come to him with the wrong hungers and desires. You'll end up disappointed. You'll end up bitter. He's about so much more than those things. Jesus says, not as the world gives do I give. I give something tangibly different to what the world gives. Seeking for what he chooses to give, the bread he wants to give. Well, that was the first point, a bit of a shocking one. Jesus doesn't satisfy all hungers. But secondly, Jesus satisfies our deepest hunger. Our deepest hunger. 
Going back to the passage, Jesus continues to debate with the crowd. They're still not getting it. (laughs) You can read between the lines, they still want to be fed. And he starts speaking about a different type of bread that he wants to give to them. He tries to use what they desire and turn it in on itself and say, I've got something better to give to you, a better bread that I want to give to you if you don't need receive it. And he describes it in various ways. In verse 27, he says it's bread that does not spoil but endures to eternal life. This bread, this food will never go moldy. It will be everlasting and it will be for you. Verse 32, he says it's called bread from heaven, that it's not of this earth. It's actually of another realm completely. Bread from heaven, a spiritual reality, a spiritual bread. Verse 33, he calls it the bread of God, that it's not human origin for this bread. It comes from God, something very special. And then also in verse 33, he says it's bread that gives life to the world, It's not just for you crowds, it's actually for the entire world, this bread. And this is what I want to give to you. This is the hunger I want to satisfy, this type of bread. And the question is, of course, what is this bread and what hunger does it satisfy in life? I want to suggest that in in the modern age, sadly, it's very hard for us to, to detect it and to discern it and to decide, oh, that's what it is because we've got so much going on often. Lots of distractions, lots of pursuits, trivial and mundane and important and critical. Lots of different types of things that are going on. That means that often we can't actually see what the deepest hunger that's at the very root of our lives is. It's often only those that have actually got to the end of themselves, who perhaps have climbed the ladder of success and realized, oh, there's nothing there, or have actually achieved everything they wanted to achieve and realized, oh, there's still a hunger left in my soul. Don't realize, oh, this is serious. There's something still here, a deeper hunger. I think I've used these before, but uh, Boris Becker, who was the youngest Wimbledon champion by far, uh, and who won it a number of times, actually, a couple of times in quick succession, had it all. And he said in a revealingly honest interview the following, I had won Wimbledon twice before, once as the youngest player. I was rich. I had all the material possessions I needed, money, cars, women, everything. I know that this is the cliche. It's that old song of the movie and pop stars who can't find peace. They have everything and yet they are so unhappy. I had no inner peace. I felt like a puppet on a string. Sophia Loren, who was perhaps one of the most famous actresses of her generation, said this, In my life there is an emptiness it is impossible to, f- to fill. And people throughout the generations have experienced this deep, cavernous, emptiness and hunger. And psychoanalysts have actually looked at it and tried to work out, well, what is it for? Freud, for example, said that people are hungry for love. His contemporary Jung said people are hungry for security. Adler said people are hungry for significance. Just trying to somehow work out what is this hunger? But to all those things, Jesus simply comes and says, I am the bread of life. 
I'm about that hunger and I want to satisfy it. See, the Bible says the deepest hunger that we have in our lives is a hunger for God who is always meant to be there in our lives. We were made for him. And that something's gone horribly wrong with the world and with us. We've gone wrong. We've done wrong. Which means that we've lost that. Yet Jesus says, I've come to fulfill that hunger, that living, loving, lasting relationship with God, that you might be fulfilled by it, that you might be satisfied and satiated by it, that your hunger might be met with true bread. That's what Jesus is about. It's about that hunger. And if you try and fill that hunger with any other thing, it might work for a while. It might work for a very long while, but it will never truly satisfy. It will always be there. Some of you know this. It will always be there down in your soul. The 16th century philosopher and mathematician, Blaise Pascal, said this. What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim? But there was once in man a true happiness, of which all that now remains is an empty print and a trace. This he in vain tries to fill with everything around him, but none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and unchangeable object. In other words, by God himself. Basically saying that for an infinitely deep hole in our lives that can't be filled with the finite things of this world, there needs to be an infinite solution, the infinite God who fills it completely. And that's what it's pointing towards. That's the hunger that needs satisfying. And that's what Jesus is about. That's what he wants to do. Reflecting on this this week, I was reminded of perhaps the best example of someone who found this. And this is a guy from a very long time ago, 4th century. We're going back in the years now. Someone called St. Augustine, who many of you will have heard of. And he was a contemporary of a number of emperors and profound philosophers. He moved in those circles, but was perhaps Christianity's greatest teacher of that age. They started out, actually, on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. He was raised in a Christian home. He had a Christian mother called Monica who prayed with him daily and continued to do so throughout his life. But he decided, right, I'm going to rebel against all of that and I'm going to leave home and make my own way. And so he left home in, North, in northern Africa, headed off to Rome. And he was actually a brilliant guy. He was phenomenally intelligent, which comes out in his later writings. And so he thought, I'm sorted. I'll land myself a great job, get lots of money, and have a sorted life. And I don't need to bother with all that Christianity that my mother forced on me. And so he just ran away from it, actually. And actually, for a while, he did do really well. But he became increasingly aware of this missing part of his soul, the hole in the soul, as people have called it. And he started to think, well, what is this? I can't explain. Despite my great intellect, I can't seem to satisfy it. And so he tried two things. Firstly, he tried philosophy. He found the greatest teachers of philosophy of the age and sat at their feet and tried to study what they taught to see if their way of doing life was the way to get it satisfied. And he went all over the place and he found that all of it rang hollow. Then he thought, well, this isn't working. 
I'm going to try and go hedonistic and just eat as much as I can and drink as much as I can and indulge myself as much as I can. So he went to all the Roman feasts that he could think of. He went, unfortunately, to a number of orgies to exercise that particular desire. He went to a number of drinking sessions and got completely and utterly wasted over and over again. And at the end of that, that didn't satisfy him. It was only then, actually, he came to the end of himself, finally. He thought, well, maybe I should come back and try this Christianity thing. He was prompted by someone reading out the Bible in the next door garden, actually, <laughs> in the end. And he, all he had to do was humble himself and actually say, Jesus, I'm aware of this missing part of my soul. I want to come back to you for it. And when he did do that, suddenly, as you might have guessed, the floodgates were opened. And lasting, enduring satisfaction, he became one of the greatest writers and thinkers of the Christian faith the world has ever seen. His writings today still affect us. And later in his autobiography, he famously wrote this about that experience. A prayer to God, he said this, O oh God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. I wonder if you know any of that, if you've experienced it in your life. I know I have. Maybe here that you have never experience that true satisfaction that Christ brings to the emptiness that can be in life. And let me tell you, you can go all over the place, like Augustine did, like thousands of people have done, and you won't find satisfaction for it. It's only found in Jesus. Only he gives that bread that really satisfies. It may be that you're here and you've known this, you've tasted it in the past, but you've decided, I'm going to try all kinds of other things. I'm going to pursue the things the world pursues. I'm going to climb the career ladder. I'm going to find fulfillment in my relationships. I'm going to become wealthy. I'm going to aim for comfort and ease in life. Maybe that will bring that satisfaction. And none of those things, none of those things work. And let me tell you, only Jesus fills what you need in your life. Only he will. And perhaps even tonight you need to repent and say, Lord, I've wandered away from it, pursuing all kinds of other things, but you are the bread of life. I want to come to you for it. Well, that was uh, the second point. Jesus satisfies our deepest hunger. And thirdly, Jesus himself is the satisfaction for our deepest hunger. You see, Jesus doesn't just say, here's the bread, let me lead you to it. Or he doesn't just say, here's the map that I can show you the route to it. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. You see, he knows that their greatest need, our greatest need, the world's greatest need is for God. And he also knows exactly who he is. He's God standing right in front of him. He says, it's me. Come to me. I'm the bread of life. I'm the one you're looking for. You can look all over the shop, but it's me. Let me tell you clearly, I am the bread of life. And this is, taking a step back, an astounding claim. 
It takes great audacity to say that you are God in the flesh who satisfies your deepest hunger. But in one way, it's the only one that makes sense, I want to suggest. The only one that makes logical sense. All the religions in the world suggest that our greatest need is for God. It's what they're about. Either God or the divine or something similar in concept. But most of the other religions in the world will say, well, here's the way to find God. Do this, say these things, act in these ways, and you'll find that satisfaction for your souls. I myself was uh, raised in a Hindu context, and there are three possible ways in the Hindu faith, I don't know if you knew that, called yogas, which, are the ten- which is the technical understanding of what the word means. It's a way of finding God. And the problem with that is very simple. You don't know if the way ends in the right place. If you're going to follow a path, you better be sure about where it's going to end. And in none of those faiths has anyone come back from the dead to say, oh, it's okay, this was the right path. This was the way to find that true satisfaction. But Christianity is different. The Christian faith says, you don't have to act in a certain way or try and find a certain means of living to work your way towards God. It actually says that God has come to us. He's come to you and me. He's bridged the divide from his end. And he's decided to do something about the barrier between him and us, us and him. And if you're not sure about whether that is true, well, Jesus himself said, I'm going to come back from the dead and tell you it's a good path. And that's exactly what he did. It was resurrection of the dead. He said, it's okay. I've just proved to the entire world that what I said is true by defeating death itself. And so that now we can trust him. We can trust what he says here. We can trust that what he says in his I am statements are true. And when he says that I am the bread of life, well, he really is the bread of life. He's proven it beyond a measure of doubt. He hasn't just made it up. And for us, as we end here, I want to suggest that the simplest thing to do as a response is to do what he says. He says, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never thirst. If you're aware that these are words that Jesus speaks to you tonight, then this is what you need to do. Jesus never force feeds us with what's good for us. He's not like that. He maintains our dignity and our freedom. But he does offer invitations. An invitation to a feast, actually. He says it here, he says it to us tonight. He said it in Isaiah 55, perhaps the best words of these invitations, where he says this. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread and, and labour for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourself with rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live.
in this room, there is absolutely no reason why a single person should not know Jesus is the bread of life that satisfies the deepest of hungers in your soul. Not a single reason. That invitation is to every single one of us, whether you've known him for years or whether you've only just heard it about him. He says, come. He says, come, I'm here. I'm right here in front of you. Drop the other distractions, drop the other pursuits to find fulfillment and come to me. I'm the one that will satisfy. So we're going to do that in response in just a minute. We're going to sing together now. Emily, can I just invite you up? By the way, this is Emily's